All right, hey, good morning. Good morning. Been looking forward to this time of opening God's Word today with you guys, and I hope that uh, uh, we can hear something fresh from God's Word, that uh, today we get to actually hear from Jesus Himself, that Jesus would uh, really draw our attention to, to, to a, a, a core reality of His mission, of why He came and what He came to do among us through His life, death, resurrection, and ascension. But uh, clearly He's... We're looking at Matthew chapter 5 and his time with us and what, among the people gathered around him, what he wanted to make sure they got. He wanted to make sure they didn't miss this key point about his ministry, his teaching, because uh, it's important. it was important for them. Likewise, then, it's important for us as well. Uh, so I love it that Jesus took time. I mean, really, three years, the older you get, you realize three years isn't a long time. Uh, it goes by pretty quick. Um, but Jesus had three years, and he spent a portion of that teaching uh, those who would gather around him. And I think it's uh, important for us to notice what did he teach? What did he take the time to uh, make a common theme in his teachings? Those are the things that we ought not miss, right? And so I'm thankful that they're preserved for us. They're saved for us in Scripture. They're saved for us in the Gospels uh, because uh, that is where we ought to train our attention. That, those are the things that we ought to center our life around. So today we're continuing in our Law and Prophet series. Uh, this is week number three. Week number three. And today is called Barkley. Uh, how many have ever heard of ultramarathons? Is my microphone even on? No. All right, how about that? How many? <laughs> hey, everybody. It's good to see you today. Let's start over. No, just kidding. Uh, how many have heard of ultra marathons? It's a, it's a race distance that's further than a marathon. Ultra marathon. So uh, anything longer than a marathon, which is 26.2 miles, uh, typically run on trail, but there are some road versions. But uh, the common distances for ultra marathons are 50 kilometers, which any, any numbers people out there, how many miles is that? 31.1, close. Uh, uh, so a 50K, a 50 mile distance, 100 kilometers, and 100 miles. Now they're getting out there crazy, like 200 miles, 240 miles. Uh, they're foot races. Uh, and uh, as you may, may know, I, I, I try my hand at some of these, and uh, I've attempted some 100 milers. And uh, most people, when they find out that I, I run 100 mile trail races, uh, they always end up, if they've been on YouTube, if they've seen documentaries about the Barkley Marathons, they always ask me, oh, do you want to do that one in Tennessee called the Barkley Marathons? And I just want to clear the air right now. No. <laughs> I have no desire. I have a hard, hard enough time. I mean, 100 miles is hard. <laughs> Newsflash, you know, what? Yeah, no, true. Uh, but I have a hard enough time with the relatively uh, genteel, easy 100 milers. Uh, I don't need to go find the hardest ones. Another one on my list of do not, uh, do not attempt is what's called the Badwater 135. Anyone heard of that one? It's a 135 mile uh, foot race from Badwater Basin in Death Valley, which is the lowest point in the United States or North America, and it goes up the side of Mount Whitney um, in July. So, uh, nope. I'm just saving you the trouble. Don't even ask. I don't want to do that, and I don't want to do the Barkley Marathons. By reputation, the Barkley Marathons is the hardest foot race in the world. In over 30, in 35, it's 35-year history, over 1,000 people have attempted uh, the Barkley Marathons. Uh, they've attempted this punishing five-lap 
100 mile plus, 60,000 foot plus elevation gain foot race uh, with only 15 people ever finishing. The rest died. I'm just kidding. No, they just quit. They quit. No one's died. But only 15 have finished this race successfully. The race, the Barkley Marathons, is held each year in Frozen Head State Park in Tennessee. And runners have 60 hours, 60, 60, 60 hours to navigate this largely off-trail course. Traversing, um, and it, no one knows the route. You can't GPS track it, you can't publish it, it's a secret. So, but traversing incredibly challenging terrain, which is filled with steep ridgelines, uh, deep ravines, briars, uh, the, and to make matters worse, this race is notorious for its absolutely terrible weather. So everything converges to make this a really, really almost impossible race. Now, while the race is cheap, it only costs a dollar sixty to get into this race. So why isn't everybody doing it, right? It only costs a dollar sixty uh, to get into the race. Now it's a dollar sixty plus a license plate from your home state or country, and also a pair of socks or a flannel shirt to enter. It depends on what the race director wants that year. Um, he might need socks. You bring socks, but anyway, it is notoriously hard to get into the Barkley Marathons. Each year, only 40 competitors are chosen, and most years, no one finishes. Uh, now, a few each year make it to what's called the fun run, which the Barkley Marathon's fun run is completing three laps of the race, and that's the fun run. <laughs> it's funny, too. Each Well, I'm sure it's not funny for the person, but uh, each year, the race director chooses a runner that they call the sacrificial lamb. They, he intentionally chooses a runner that, that there's no way they're going to finish. They're probably not even going to finish one lap. So he chooses a sacrificial lamb and he tells the person, he's like, I chose you because you have no hope. You have no hope. Uh, yeah, it's kind of a fun race. Like when people drop out, um, they play the uh, bugle, they play taps on the bugle. And uh, the race director says, uh, my only regret is that you could not have suffered longer. Everyone's like, thank you, thank you. It's kind of a weird scene. But anyway. And they have to tap that button. Yeah, and then they have to tap up. You remember Staples had that easy button that you tapped? It was like, that was easy. So when they quit, they have to tap the button. It's like, that was easy. So it's funny. But anyway, there's some good documentaries I could point you to. But anyway, each year, like I said, 40 competitors are chosen. Now, around this race, there's much lore and there's much mystery, as I've mentioned. Uh, and there's much lore and mystery about its founder, whose name is Lazarus Lake. I've got an image of Lazarus Lake. Uh, Kendi, can you bring up image number one? Um, this is Lazarus Lake. He uh, is the founder of the Barkley Marathons. And his hat, you can see, says geezer. And he's about the biggest geezer. I mean, if you like, imagine what a geezer's like, it's him. He's a great guy, but he's kind of different. Which is, yeah, there's different and then there's different. You know the difference, right? And, you know, like there's different, which is an alternate option, but then there's different, which is like, anyway. Anyway, no one knows when the race, I mean, there's a, there's a story on why this race is run where it is. It's about uh, the guy who, who assassinated Martin Luther King, escaped from the prison there and made it only a certain distance into the forest during the his 60 hours of freedom from the prison before he's recaptured. But anyway, there's a backstory to that. Check it out. But anyway, so the 40 people that are chosen for this race, no one knows exactly when it's going to begin. So they're said, show up on this day, and sometime within a 24-hour span, on this appointed day, the race will begin. So everyone's just there, and they're waiting. And then a one-hour warning uh, till the 
to the race start time is given by blowing on a conch shell or a conch shell, depending on where you're from. But all of a sudden, out in the middle of this campground, you'll hear a conch shell being blown. And when you hear that, you know the race is going to begin in one hour. It could be day or night, rain or shine. It's starting in one hour. So be at the starting line. The race itself is not started with a starting pistol or an air horn. It is started with Lazarus Lake lighting a cigarette. The race starts when he lights a cigarette. It's such a weird thing, but it's such a fascinating thing as well. Now in 2017, uh, 2017 was the last year that someone successfully finished the Barkley Marathons. Um, but at the finish line, a heartbreaking scene unfolded uh, with a Canadian runner named Gary Robbins who missed the final cutoff by six seconds. He missed the cutoff by six seconds. It was heartbreaking. I've got a picture of uh, Gary Robbins with uh, Lazarus Lake, the race director. Gary Robbins is on the right. He's from Canada. And uh, after, after successfully finishing four of the five loops, everyone was waiting for Gary Robbins to complete the final lap. As time was ticking down toward that 60-hour limit, another man named John Kelly from Washington, D.C., he had just finished the race with a half hour to spare uh, following his own harrowing experience of cold, of fatigue, of disorientation, and delirium. He came in to the finish line looking like death warmed over, if you know what that looks like. I mean, you saw him finish and it's like... That guy needs help. Uh, but he finished. Gary, uh, John Kelly did. So now everyone was waiting for Gary Robbins. They were looking up the trail in the direction from which he would hopefully emerge uh, when, when someone finally spotted him. But he was coming in from the wrong direction. They were all looking up the trail and someone looked behind and said, wait, there he is. And they all turn and look and he's coming up the road from the wrong way. And they knew something was wrong. After collecting the final page of the 11 books that are hidden on the course, as you go around the lap, there's 11 books, and you have to find them, and you have to tear out the page that corresponds with your number for each lap and bring those back. But after collecting the final page of the 11 books that are hidden on the course, uh, Gary Robbins had become lost. He'd become lost and disoriented in the fog. As a result, he took the wrong trail. He took the wrong trail from a summit he was on. He missed the correct trail to the finish line, and it caused him to bypass the final two miles and come into the finish line from the wrong direction. As he careened toward the finish line, going as fast as he could, his face was gaunt, his gait was failing, he was using his trekking poles to keep him upright, and once he touched the yellow gate, which is the finish line, he collapsed to the ground, and his wife rushed to his side, and she was hovering over his wrecked body as everybody was celebrating in that moment with tears and with cheers, but soon an agonizing realization began to dawn on everybody. His finish didn't count. He was disqualified. He got what's called in ultra running a DNF, a did not finish. He did all that work. He suffered all those challenges and he did not finish. Oh, it was heartbreaking. Even though he had all the pages from all the books, he had missed critical components of the race. Guys, he was off course and he was over the time limit by six seconds. What a tragedy. I've got an excerpt from an article I read at the time that kind of explains it well. It's from Canadian Trail Running. It's, a, it's called A Story for the Ages. 
Oh, I got a picture of him on the ground too. There he is right there. Look at that. That's how sad it was. If you can see his wife's face, she's just like, just so terrified and sad and worried for her husband. It's a really sad scene. <laughs> well, that's part of the rules. Sons aren't dress shoes. All right. For the second year in a row, Gary Robbins came, goes home heartbroken from the Barkley Marathons course. The Canadian trail runner who was hoping to make history by becoming the first Canadian to finish the Barkley missed the cutoff time by six seconds. He also made a navigational error and went wrong on the course at the fifth and final loop. Coming into the finish from a clockwise direction instead of the counterclockwise, he finished having collected all the necessary pages from the course. Conditions in the Tennessee wilderness were extremely cruel today as Robbins dealt with a thick fog and snow in the final stages of the race. It was then unfavorable, these unfavorable weather conditions that caused him to make the error. The scene from the finish line was silent when spectators realized that Robbins' effort was, had resulted in a DNF after 60 hours of racing and months of training. Robbins fell to the ground immediately after making it to the gate. While, he ca while we captured footage of the scene, the dialogue can be difficult to make out. He said, I, I, went, I went on the wrong side of the mountain in the fog. I think I got all the pages, but I went the wrong way. When the, when the fog finally cleared and Robbins could see what was going on, he had three minutes and 57 seconds to get to the finish line. Lazarus Lake said, he has all the pages. But after a long, reluctant pause, he said, I'll, I'll just have to see where he went. Robbins replied, it's okay if it doesn't count. I understand. I went on the opposite trail in the fog. Robbins got all the necessary pages, but he went right at the last turn. After his finish, after his finish race director Lazarus Lake was able to confirm where he went. You have to come in on the right trail anyway, he noted. In other words, though Robbins missed the deadline by six seconds, he still would have been disqualified for coming in the wrong way. The race director also confirms that Robbins did, in fact, have all the pages collected. His race, though, still counts as incomplete. Still, it's a story for the ages, Lazarus Lake noted. He noted that Gary Robbins just made one mistake at the very end. Thank you very much for another wonderful event, Robbins said. That's the end of the article. I mean, what a tragic scene. I remember watching a live stream of the 2017 Barkley Marathon, and I remember being on the edge of my seat waiting for Gary Robbins to finish. It was, and it was absolutely gut-wrenching. I remember I had tears in my eyes when I turned to Christy. He's like, Christy, you won't believe this. And I had her watch, and it was terrible. Waiting for Robbins to finish, it was, it was gut-wrenching as it unfolded. The struggle, the pain, the heartbreak in both Gary and his wife's face. How terribly sad it was. How terribly sad it is to see someone work so hard and come so close to success to reach the finish line but ultimately fail and be disqualified. Oh, it just stabs at your heart. To do everything right, but miss one crucial, essential part is the most tragic outcome of all, whether it's in sports, whether it's in your life's work, or whether it's in your faith. Sad to say, it is possible, even with the best of intentions, to miss the point. There's some really well-intentioned people out there that are, in the end, missing the point. It's possible to miss the point. To miss the point in the, the most important areas of our lives, in those most important endeavors of our lives, including, and most of all, in our life with God. And this is the thing. Jesus wants to warn His listeners of this very danger. 
There in the first part of the Sermon on the Mount, he's like, hey guys, let's start here. I don't want you to miss this because there's real danger. Jesus, in what is considered his thesis statement, his thesis statement for both his Sermon on the Mount, but also all of his ministry, he urgently clarifies his mission, desiring that we would all see him clearly, see why he came clearly and warning us, please do not miss the point. Do not miss the point of why I came. Let's look at Matthew chapter 5. Let's look at verses 17 through 20 today. Don't misunderstand why I have come. Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. So, if you ignore the least commandment and teach others to do the same, you will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But anyone who obeys God's law and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. But I warn you, Unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus makes it very clear, and he wants his people to understand why he came. So verse 17 and 18, Don't misunderstand why I have come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. I tell you the truth. Until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. Now, why did Jesus say this? Why did Jesus say, do not understand, misunderstand why I've come? Why do you think Jesus said that? Do not misunderstand why I've come. Okay, because people were misunderstanding. They were projecting their own anticipations, their own expectations upon him. Uh, why else? Why else would Jesus say, do not misunderstand why I've come? Okay, it's important. It's important to know people were misunderstanding it. It's important to know, and it's possible. It's possible for anyone to come to Jesus and look right past what he's saying and doing and miss the point. So he wants us to, to not miss the point here. It's possible to misunderstand Jesus. There's a real danger in missing the point of Jesus and his ministry. Tragedy of tragedies. We can come into Christ's presence... We can uh, start to follow him through faith, yet end up looking in the wrong direction. We can end up following him, focusing on the wrong things. Did you know that's possible? To get distracted? To get fascinated with certain things that aren't the point? And, and just be distracted? We can, with the best of intentions, embrace false assumptions about Jesus, about what he was teaching, and about why he came. We can end up following our distractions and completely missing the point of why he came. Now, for the Jews, a common belief was that the Messiah would come, and when Messiah came, he would give a new and better law. He would come and give a new and better law than the one given to Moses. And the word Jesus uses here uh, in your Bible might read abolish, Jesus uses the word abolish, and with that word came the, the, brought to mind images of destruction, destruction of buildings, uh, symbolizing the tearing down of the old, 
uh, and the constructing of something new. They expected that Jesus would come and destroy the old and build up the new, to do away with the old, to abolish the old and bring something new. Likewise, it's possible for Christians, it's popular for Christians now, to fancy that we are free from all that stuff God said in the Old Testament. You've probably run into Christians, uh, maybe you've been a Christian, who has really kind of tacitly disregarded the Old Testament because it's just not really important anymore. We don't need to know that because we have a New Testament. The wording is a little bit tricky because we have the Old and then we have the New Testament, uh, thinking that, oh, we just need the new one. It's the version 2.0, right? It replaces, it does, it, it does away with the Old. We can carry this assumption with us as Christians, as people following Jesus. We can start to believe and live as if we're liberated to do whatever we want. That we can follow Jesus, be a committed Christian, yet be blissfully ignorant of the law. Blissfully ignorant of the law that was given to Moses um, on Mount Sinai. But Jesus will have none of that. This is why he comes so forcefully to make his statement here, Do not misunderstand why I've come. He cuts us right off in no uncertain terms. Do not misunderstand. Let's start here. Don't misunderstand why I've come. I have not come down to I've not come to tear down the old structure as some suppose. I've come instead to bring it to completion, to accomplish its purpose and free it from rigid religious ritual and to actually give it life. To give it life, to bring all of God's will and His way into the world in a living, breathing, uh, transformative way. There is a cosmic and eternal purpose to the law given to Moses. It was not the law, and hear me clearly, the law was not given as a placeholder simply to keep Israel in line. It was not given just as a moral code to keep Israel in line until Messiah showed up. Okay? It wasn't like, all right, just behave. Messiah will be here soon. Don't eat pork. You know what I mean? It's just like, don't do this stuff. Just be, behave, and God will show up soon when He sends Messiah. The, Messiah. the mission of Messiah was to flesh out and actually fulfill the law's intent and the law's aim. Now, in your faith, wherever you may decide to get fuzzy or creative... One must keep their pivot foot firmly planted in this reality. All of the Old Testament points to Jesus, and Jesus points to all of the Old Testament. This is why he says so often, all the law and all the prophets hang on this teaching I'm giving to you. The Old Testament points us to Jesus, and when we go to Jesus, we find that He points us back to all God has said in the Old Testament. Jesus is not leading us over, around, or beyond the law. Jesus is leading us deeply into its heart and toward its ultimate intent. Is that helpful? Jesus doesn't say, hey, set this aside. He's like, no, 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 press in. Press in. Verse 19. So if you ignore the least commandment and teach others to do the same, you'll be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But anyone who obeys God's law and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is telling us that willful ignorance about even the least commandment given by God has a diminishing effect. Do you hear that? Willful ignorance. Willful. 
holding on to an inadequate or an inaccurate belief because it suits our, our desires or suits our felt needs. Willful ignorance about even the least commandment given by Jesus, given by God, has a diminishing effect on the faith and the future of a Christ follower. Why is it important to say this? Because many today elevate their willful ignorance their willful ignorance of God's intent to a form of quasi-religion. People can take their biblically illiterate, uh, um, a la carte, boutique uh, Christianity and make it a quasi-religion in and of itself. Going so far as conceiving and promoting their willful ignorance as a special insight as if they've uncovered a new kind of revelation about what God actually meant. They, they push it forward as a novel doctrine or a new gospel. And then they, they disseminate it and they teach it to others, which only, as Jesus says, further seals their fate. Guys, we see a lot of this happening today. There's podcasts, there's authors out there that are labeled Christian, but if you listen closely to what they're saying, it is not that which Jesus teaches. It is not pointing us to the Old Testament. It is not taking us to Scripture. It's not pushing us deeper into the heart of God's expressed, revealed will. Be on guard. Jesus would say, be on guard. Jesus promises that they will gain their reward. If you ignore the least commandment and teach others to do the same, you will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But Jesus promises, too, that if you hold fast to God's commandments and uh, you are discipling others to do the same, it leads to blessing. But anyone who obeys God's law and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. In, uh, obedience, let's hold to this. Jesus says obedience is the path that leads to being called great in the kingdom of heaven. Guys, I don't think that means what sometimes we think, that we're going to be like in charge, or we're going to have like, you know, uh, be carrying the clipboard in heaven, you know, or whatever. You know, like, hey, we're going to be in charge. We're going to get to boss people around. We're going to be great. People are going to look at us like the LeBron James of heaven. I don't think that's what it means. Because Jesus in other places explains what greatness in the kingdom looks like. But whatever it is that Jesus might mean, I want it. I want to be great in the kingdom. I want to be a lot more and more like Jesus when I enter fully into his kingdom. And it starts here by embracing his actual teachings and then teaching others to do the same. That's how we become great in his kingdom. This verse, it hangs in my spirit. As a pastor, as a friend, as a Christ follower, this verse hangs in my spirit and it may hang in yours as well. So many of my friends who've been raised in Christian homes, they've been raised hearing the story of Jesus, hearing the story of God. They've been raised in the church um, they have chosen to ignore the very things that Jesus said about why he came. They've chosen to ignore the very things Jesus said about what he expects of us, how God has ordered the universe, and how God desires us to live our actual lives. They've chosen instead to cherry-pick Jesus' statements, to ignore his mission, to, to sidestep his stated intent for coming to us, to completely ignore ideas of salvation and of transformation. Instead, they've cobbled together a progressive, biblically ignorant, and rationally incoherent message of justice, love, and acceptance, which is suspiciously void of any call to truth, 
or any kind of demand for righteousness or death to self or any kind of shock horror morality we want our cake and we want to eat it too we don't want to have to we want to live this good you know loving accepting life but we don't want to actually listen to what God said over the years, I've seen many of the friends I love, people I love, wander from the Christian faith, chasing after a false gospel, believing that Jesus came to abolish instead of fulfill God's commands. They're seeking peace and love, yet at the same time ignoring holiness and ignoring Scripture. Guys, it's endemic in the world today, in our Western post-Christian culture. There's so many who still borrow Christian vocabulary. They have this thin veneer of Christianese, of Christian language that they still use, but it doesn't mean the same thing. It's completely uh, uh, moved from its foundation in any kind of scripture, and it's purely self-seeking. So be on your guard. Verse 20, Jesus says, But I warn you, Unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Come on, Jesus. How is that supposed to work? Because in, the in their day, how did people regard the Pharisees? Holy, yeah. I mean, but it's like, wait, these are the like paid professionals. These are the experts at the law. How are we going to possibly get better than that? I think they felt about the Pharisees in their, in their execution of the law in the same way that Jesus said about the rich young rulers, like, it's hard for rich people to get through heaven. It's easier for a camel to fit through the eye of a needle than a rich person to get into heaven. And you notice how the disciples responded? Did they respond like, yeah, rich idiots, tax the rich, you know? No, they said, oh my goodness, how can any of us be saved? How can anybody be saved? I think in this moment they're like, oh no. He set the bar really, really high. That unless we're more righteous than the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, we'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Man, why do we give up now? But in, in saying this, I think it's something important is taking place. Jesus is putting in place uh, a guardrail. He he's, he's puts a, the other guardrail in place to keep people on the path. Yes, as he's, as he's illustrated, there is great danger in straying into willful ignorance about God and about His will. That is possible. But there is an equal and opposite error found in rigid religious legalism. Has anyone ever reacted to what they see going on with someone's like lackadaisical, scripture-free understanding of Christianity by being more and more rigid and, and ritualistic? The answer to progressive, meaningless, self-centered Christianity is not dogmatic, rule-bound, fundamentalist Christianity. I think just, Jesus says there's a ditch on each side of the road, and I want to keep you out of both of them. I want to keep you on the path. I want to keep you heading further up, further into my kingdom, and staying out of the ditch. So the answer to progressive, meaningless, self-centered Christianity is not dogmatic, rule-bound, fundamentalist Christianity. Becoming a Pharisee is a recipe for disaster. It is an equal departure from the way of Jesus, and it is equally idolatrous in the end. You can end up serving the wrong things just as easily as a Pharisee as you can as a, uh, as a libertine, self-centered, I-want-to-do-it-my-way follower of Jesus. 
The InterVarsity uh, Press New Testament Commentary explains it this way, this passage seems to suggest that an uncommitted Christian is not a Christian at all. Wait, hold the presses. What? Is Jesus insinuating that, that an uncommitted Christian is actually not a Christian? Is actually not following Jesus? I think that's what Jesus is saying here in chapter 5, verse 20. Like other Jewish teachers, Jesus demanded whole obedience to what? To the Scriptures. He pointed our attention nowhere else but to the, the revealed Word of God in Scripture. Unlike most of his contemporaries, however, Jesus was not satisfied with the performance of the scribes and Pharisees, observing that this law observance fell short of the demands of salvation. After grabbing his hearer's attention with such a statement, Jesus goes on to define God's law not simply in terms of how people behave, but in terms of who they really are. And this is found in the whole rest of the Sermon on the Mount, verse, chapter 5, verse 21, through the end of chapter 5, and then onward. As with the law, and hear me clearly on this, please. As with the law, the answer to living well with God and His commandments is not found in trying harder. Okay, it's not found in trying harder. What the disciples felt about living up and surpassing the law, the, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, that exasperation, that, that like frustration, yeah, that's right. We can't do it either. So the answer is not found in us trying harder, but is found in letting Christ, inviting Christ, allowing Christ and His teachings to come into our life, to shape us, to come in and actually be accomplished in us, brought to life in you and me. That's the way forward, surrender and obedience. Jesus, come, speak your truth, bring all of God's will and way into my life and help me shape my very being around the truth revealed therein. We move toward a righteousness that is better than the Pharisees when we rightly understand Christ and His mission and then surrender to His will and His way in our lives. Okay, you see those two important steps, right? We move toward righteousness, a righteousness that is better than the Pharisees, when we rightly understand Christ and His mission, and then surrender to His will and way in our lives. Understand and surrender. Trust and obey. Inviting Jesus to fulfill the purpose of the law and prophets, this, uh, this is at the heart of what it means to have faith in Him. Confessing with your mouth, believing in your heart, asking Him, please come, bring that to life in me, make that a reality in me, bring it to fruition in me. This is what my faith is about in you, Jesus. This is the key to finishing the race. This is the key to coming in on time. This is the key to coming in from the right direction. This is the key to finishing well. This is the key to finishing rightly and well. And that's what I pray for you. That's what I pray for me. That's what I pray for all of us. That we would understand and that we would surrender today. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would work this truth into our hearts, just as it had to be worked into the hearts of the people gathered around Jesus on the hillside that day in Matthew. Lord, we bring all of our competing interests and all of our appetites and all of our misunderstandings and our wrong conclusions into the life of faith. And God, you're patient with us. You're kind to us. But you're very bold in saying, do not misunderstand, because God, we misunderstand sometimes. Sometimes we misunderstand because we don't 
We don't know. But then other times, God, in our sin, we misunderstand because we don't want to know. We don't want to know. We recognize what you say, but we just don't want to live that way. We don't want to order our life around, around you and about what you've uh, said to us. God, there's so much willful ignorance, and it's not just outside the church. God, it's inside the church too. God, please heal us of our willful ignorance. Lead us to a place of repentance when it comes to our willful ignorance, to the ways you've come to bring the law of God to life in us. Lord, I pray that you'd be uh, at work in our hearts and in our minds, leading us to a place of prayer when we need to repent, when we need to confess, when we need to intercede for our, for our brothers and sisters that are willfully on the wrong path, when they're willfully departing from what Jesus has made clear. God, I pray that we would be a people that are very honest about who we are and what our tendencies are, but that we would also be coming more and more clear about what you came to teach us and to tell us that when we say we're Christ followers, that we would truly be Christ followers more and more day by day. Lord, I pray that you would give us clarity, give us discernment, give us keen insight, because we live in a world that is very confused, and that confusion extends into the church. There's many quote-unquote Christian voices that are coming, and they're leading people astray. They're speaking over and against the things that Jesus actually said, and people are believing it. God, it's like there's wolves in sheep's clothing among the flock even today. And so, God, I pray that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear and understand, hearts that would respond to truth. God, may your way, may your truth be shaped inside of us and may our whole lives be ordered around that truth. May you be honored, God. And may when that day comes, may we all gather around and worship you. <laughs> and to our great joy and discovery, find that man, we're great in the kingdom because we obeyed. We obeyed. We can discover. We will each discover what greatness in your kingdom actually looks like, what it's actually about. Oh, thanks for your patience with us. Thank you for your goodness you've shown us. Thank you for your abiding presence in our lives through your Holy Spirit. I pray that your Holy Spirit would be at work today, drawing us deeper in, leading us to a place of honesty. Do your work of salvation and transformation in each of us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to worship a bit more, and uh, this is an opportunity to sit with the Lord. Maybe, maybe there's something going on inside of you that you need to just lay out there and say, God, I willful ignorance, willful disobedience. God, I've been guilty of that, and I'm so sorry. Teach me how to walk rightly. Teach me how to do the right thing in this. God is faithful to help us in that. Just make yourself available today. That's all I ask. Make the most of this opportunity.